0: This podcast is brought to you by Intel v. Pro. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 4th. Today, a remarkable recording of the president's post-election pressure campaign and the simple genius of a hug room.
1: So the president has been trying to talk to Brad Raffensperger, the Republican secretary of state in Georgia, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And Raffensperger has not taking those calls, so he finally took a call from him on Saturday afternoon around three o'clock.
2: Hello, Brad and Ryan and everybody. We appreciate the time and the call.
1: And he wanted to talk to him about how he could win the state.
0: This wasn't just a routine call to state lawmakers. In fact, President Trump called the secretary of state in Georgia to see if he could find enough votes to overturn his defeat. National political reporter Amy Gardner covers voting issues, and she received a recording of the call from a source.
1: Everybody on the call was either in D.C., Georgia, where several of the, all of the folks from the Secretary of State's office were in Georgia, and one of President Trump's attorneys was in Georgia, or North Carolina, which is where Mark Meadows was calling from the chief of staff to the White House. And all three of those jurisdictions are one-party consent States, which means that you can record a conversation that you're on uh, and you don't have to tell anybody else on the call. So it was a legally recorded conversation and legally given to me.
2: Brad, what are we going to do? We won the election and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. And it's going to be very costly in many ways. And... I think you have to say that you're going to reexamine it and you can reexamine it, but, but reexamine it with people that want to find answers, not people that don't want to find answers.
0: And this is coming in a critical point because the last step in the election process is happening this week, correct?
1: That's right. Congress will convene on Wednesday in a joint session, a quadrennial joint session that happens every four years after the presidential election, at which time they vote to accept the Electoral College result. And that's scheduled for Wednesday. And there are some plans among some Republicans to challenge the electoral college votes in swing states. And it won't be enough to change the outcome because the Democrats control the House. And that's the final step which paves the way for the official transition and the inauguration of Joe Biden on January 20th.
0: So then in this phone call with Raffensperger, what is President Trump seeking to do? Like, what does he think that he can change to essentially make this last step go his way?
1: So President Trump listed different categories of fraud that he claimed on the call, as he has many, many times. He said that more than 5,000 votes were cast by dead people.
2: So dead people voted... And I think uh, the the number is in the pro- uh, close to 5,000 people. And they went to uh, obituaries. They went to uh, all sorts of methods to come up with an accurate number. And a minimum is close to about 5,000 voters.
1: He said that a election worker in Fulton County, where Atlanta is, scanned 18,000 000- Phoney, fraudulent ballots three times each, and they were all for Biden.
2: There's a whole thing with the ballots, but the ballots are corrupt, and you're going to find that they are which is totally illegal it's 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 more illegal for you than it is for them because you know what they did, and you're not reporting it that's a you know that's a criminal that's a criminal offense
1: he said that thousands of voters moved back into Georgia from out of state just to vote in the election, which would be a crime in Georgia. You can't just move in to vote. And he offered no evidence for any of these instances of fraud. He also said that the Dominion voting systems machinery that Georgia uses to administer its elections were programmed to flip Trump votes for Biden. And he said that they've accounted for at least 24,000 votes that are fraudulent Uh, that should be discarded, and therefore he would win the state because he lost the state by 11,779 votes. But none of it's true.
2: What what we're saying is not at all what you're describing.
1: So then what does
0: Raffensperger say on this call in response to these allegations from the president? Like, how how does he respond to the fact that the president's basically telling him that he's not doing his job properly?
1: Well, it's interesting. At the top of the call, Trump goes on for quite a while, for several minutes, rattling off all of these instances of fraud. And then Secretary Raffensberger starts to speak, and he starts to speak at length, attempting to explain to the president why his uh, allegations aren't true.
2: And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated, because uh, the 2,236 and absentee ballots, I mean, they're all exact numbers that were, were done by accounting firms, law firms, etc. And even if you cut them in half, cut them in half, and cut them in half again, it's more votes
1: than we need. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. And then he goes on to try to really explain it. He tries to explain the thing about Dominion. He tries to explain that the thing about the 18,000 votes at the uh, State Farm Arena in Atlanta is false and was investigated. And it's clear that they have resolve not to buckle under the pressure that Trump is trying to exert on them, but they're also being respectful. And then at some point, it just feels like the call isn't going to ever end. He's just repeating himself. And he even says, You know, I know I'm not getting anywhere with this. And then a few minutes after that, finally, Brad Raffensperger says.
2: Thank you, President Trump, for your time.
1: uh, Which I thought was hilarious. I mean, it's just not that often that, you know, somebody other than the president of the United States is the one who ends the call. But if he hadn't done that, I'm not sure it would have ever ended.
0: You use the word pressure to describe how Trump was talking to Raffensperger. And I want to dig in a little bit more into what that pressure looked like or sounded like. Like, what was President Trump trying to do or say in order to get some kind of change in stance from Raffensperger?
1: He tried to invoke his party loyalty. You're a Republican. How He said to the general counsel, Ryan Germany, at one point.
2: I don't even know why you have a side, because... You should want to have an accurate election. And you're a Republican.
1: He said that their behavior was very risky. That was his word, Uh, that what they were doing amounted to criminal activity. That was the most direct threat on the call.
2: That's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyers. That's a big risk. But they are shredding (laughs) ballots, in my opinion, based on what I've heard. And they are removing machinery, uh, and they're moving it as fast as they can, both of which are criminal fines, and you can't let it happen, and you are letting it happen. You know, I mean, I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. So, look, all I want to do is this I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state, and flipping the state is a great testament to our country because, you know, there's, there's, there's just a, it's a testament that they can admit to a mistake or whatever you want to call it if it was a mistake. I don't know. A lot of people think it wasn't a mistake. It was much more uh, criminal than that. But it's a big problem in Georgia, and it's, it's not a problem that's going away. I mean, you know, it's not a problem that's going away. And, and we got President, a- this is Ryan. We're yeah. looking into every one of those things that, that you mentioned.
1: I mean, there were times when his voice just sort of trailed off like, Ryan, Ryan, don't you think that these ballots were destroyed?
2: Now, do you think it's possible that they uh, shredded ballots in uh, Fulton County? Because that's what the rumor is. And also that Dominion took out machines, uh, that Dominion is really moving fast to get rid of their uh Machinery. Do you know anything about that? Because that's illegal. This is Ryan Germany. No, Dominion has not um, moved any machinery
0: out of Fulton County. We're having well, but a, no, but election. but
2: have they moved? Have they have they moved the inner parts of the machines and replaced them with other parts? No. You sure, Ryan? I'm sure. I'm sure, Mr. President. And what about what about the? Uh, what about the ballots, the uh, shredding of the ballots? Have they been shredding ballots? No. You know, the only investigation that we have into that, they have not been shredding any ballots. Um, there was an issue in Cobb County where they were doing normal uh, you know, office shredding, getting rid of old stuff, and we investigated that.
1: It's interesting. Somebody emailed me to say that this reminded them very much of the coverage of President Trump when he was... A casino operator in Atlantic City, and there were extensive news reports of his of his business style. Uh, he would he would keep people on the phone and he would just wear them down. That made me wonder if that that's just a natural sort of instinct for him to communicate that way. But these two gentlemen in the Georgia Secretary of State's Office, who did the talking, Raffensberger in Germany, were not having any of it. They were polite, but they were just like, nope, sorry. But the fact that President Trump is talking
0: about the potential of, of Raffensperger facing a criminal investigation because of how he's handled this election does does that strike you as as potentially illegal?
1: There are a number of statutes, federal and state, that could be invoked to try to prosecute President Trump for trying to you know execute a quid pro quo or extortion threatening a a criminal investigation, which he actually has the power to do, right? He's the president of the United States. He could cajole the Justice Department to launch an investigation because the Justice Department, the Attorney General reports to him. But it would be really hard to prove because all of those statutes require knowledge that that you are intending to commit a criminal act. And throughout the call, what Trump says is that the fraud really happened. The election really was rigged. Does he believe that? Is he deluded or does he know exactly what he's doing? I don't know the answer to that. And I think that that makes a criminal prosecution tricky and difficult because you'd have to prove that he intended to conspire with Brad Raffensperger to illegally flip the legal outcome of a federal election which would in fact be a crime if it's intentional. The legal scholars I spoke to over the weekend when I was reporting the story were very clear that, yeah, there are a bunch of uh, statutes, and here they are, and here's what they say. But for all the aforementioned reasons, it would be very difficult to prosecute. And I think their message to me was, let's not get bogged down in the you know, weeds of the federal statutes and how difficult it would be to prosecute, because then we miss a much larger, more important consideration in their view, which is what he did was sort of irrefutably off-scale abuse of presidential power, whether it's prosecuted or not. He is trying to undermine a legitimate federal election, and that's an abuse of power, And they want that to be the takeaway, which I thought was kind of interesting. So
0: over the past couple of months, as we've seen the president take all these steps to try to undermine the results of the election, the attitude from a lot of Republicans has been, well, you know, we just need to give President trump time to get over it and that we're just sort of like placating him behind the scenes so that he can kind of wrap his head around the fact that he lost but i think that there are some reasons to be concerned that we are getting into the territory of him trying to stage a coup and i'm wondering if there are other people in high levels of government who seem concerned about that too
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest arguments that you heard from Republicans who did not want to cross Trump was he has every right to pursue all legal options. But where we are now is that he's exhausted his legal options and that he's effectively asking a secretary of state in Georgia to illegally change the legally obtained outcome of the election. And I think one one of the you know, most, I don't know, alarming data points on where he his head is right now is this letter from 10 former secretaries of defense sort of signaling to military leaders that it is not their place to get involved in elections. And that column really alarmed me because those are, are former officials who speak to people who are in power, to military leaders. And they must have some reason to believe that this is a possibility, that Trump would actually try to use the force of the military to do what? I have no idea. To try to demand a new election somewhere? I I just don't know. But the fact that these officials, and they included... Dick Cheney, not only a former Secretary of Defense, but also, of course, a former vice president. Uh, The fact that it included these these figures is really remarkable.
0: I'm also curious, what was your reaction to hearing this call?
1: I think that it's not a coincidence that the call was to Georgia and there hasn't been any reporting of calls to other states, because I think Trump is particularly fixated on Georgia. He has made it very clear throughout his career that he hates to lose, that it's embarrassing to lose. And Georgia is particularly upsetting to him for a couple of reasons. He he lost and the Republican senators didn't lose. They are in a runoff that takes place on Tuesday. And he has a really hard time with that. And he's literally said it out loud. How can I be the only one who lost Georgia? I just think that there's a lot of psychology for him in losing Georgia and being the only Republican who did at you know, statewide.
0: Amy Gardner covers voting issues for the post. As President Trump continues to attack election officials in Georgia, the state is one day away from the last day of voting in the Senate runoff, and many people are wondering how will the president's rhetoric affect turnout among Republican voters. On a special episode of Post Reports last week, we asked that same question. Like it's my constitutional right to be here, but I'm still concerned that my vote won't be turned over to the other party. It's um. Uh, like, the integrity of all this is questionable, and it's it's a very sad time right now for me to question it. I never have in the past. What's interesting about that perception of voter suppression is that there is actually a real long history of voter suppression in Georgia. We dove into that history and context in this episode. I think that it's really worth your time. It's called Georgia on Our Minds, and you can find it in your podcast feed. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity. All with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com itheroes. And now, one more thing about a solution to physical isolation at a nursing home in central Italy.
3: This is a small nursing home. It has 16 people and many of their families live fairly close by, and yet despite that, there had been no physical contact since March. This nursing home had decided, like so many at the beginning, that if this virus gets in, it will be a catastrophe. They decided that that meant that cutting off visits was essential, and they tried very hard to come up with alternatives, iPad, uh, video calls and occasionally when the weather was nice, visits outside on the lawn at a distance with masks. But they also noticed that that wasn't enough. We have to be finding another way to help people like that. And they came upon this idea that's been popping up in in other places across Italy and across the world that seems to provide some sort of contact. And that is how the hugging room arrived at this nursing home.
0: Rome Bureau Chief Chico Harlan talked to our producer Ariel Plotnick.
3: A hug room is a little bit of a misnomer because very rarely is an actual room. What seems to be the commonality in all quote-unquote hug rooms that have been created is that there is a plastic. Sometimes it's a soft, permeable plastic, and sometimes it's hard plexiglass. But it enables, purportedly enables, there to be no exchange of aerosols, of droplets between one side and the other, which basically means that if you can fit your hands through or around the plastic, you can safely hug someone. You can safely have contact with somebody on the other side.
1: So could you set the scene for me a bit? What's this nursing home like?
3: It's basically a large house with a yard and a garden, and the residents live on the first floor and the second floor. Immediately at the entrance, you you saw this hugging room, this plexiglass that was positioned immediately at the door. So it's not like the relatives were going into the facility. They were basically taking one step into the facility, past the open door, and then coming up to the glass. And on the other side of the glass, they would see their loved one. And there were four holes. So arms on one side for one person, arms a little bit lower for the other person.
1: And did they set up some sort of system for using the hug room?
3: This was all in the days leading up to Christmas, and it was already known then that the government would be imposing a a holiday lockdown. So there was a race to have every resident meet with some loved ones before the red zone, quote unquote, came into force. So they were doing four, five, six people a day, and they were spacing them out because they would have to sanitize plexiglass in between every use. And for each one, you would see the family uh, that was next there in an on-deck circle you know, with their gifts, kind of excited, a little bit nervous too, you could tell. And then on the other side, right at the appointed time, the resident who lived there would kind of come wheeled up or would walk up uh, to the chair on the other side of the glass. Almost everybody was dressed very well. You could tell this was a special occasion that they wanted to look their best for. People were wearing, you know, nice silk scarves. Uh, one man had a tartan tie in a suit.
1: So, you met eighty-two-year-old resident Giovanna and her granddaughter Joya. Um, what was their visit like?
3: So, first, Joya, the granddaughter, saw her grandmother from behind the glass. She was already getting emotional right then and there, and but before she could even go up to put her arms in the sleeves of this of this. Plexiglass, she had to sign a waiver. She looked up from that and she was like, my hands are shaking so much I can barely do it. Then she took her place right in front of her grandmother. Eh. 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 And her grandmother was in a wheelchair. She was reluctant to stand up. She was a little worried about falling. And and so she couldn't quite get up to the right height. Joya wasn't sure where to put her arms in. And that led to this little moment where it was like, Alright, how do we do this? You know, neither of them had ever been to a hug room before. Eventually she just stuck her hands through the holes and and that seemed to be enough. Giovanna was talking about how sad she was. Oh
1: Gioia, molto non hanno fatto regalo di Natale?
3: And I think with Joya, she was very interested in just telling her grandmother the basic things. Uh, you know they talked about Joya's job at the mall, which had been put on pause because of of the lockdown.. They talked about work. They talked about masks. But really what they were doing the whole time is, is holding hands.
1: And how would these visits end? Like, how do you say goodbye in a hug room?
3: It would often end with promises to do this again, uh, to see you again. Of course, a lot of talk about the holidays. That would That was kind of how these conversations would wind down. Yeah, not everybody was in a wheelchair, but for those who were, what would happen is that all of a sudden you would you would turn around, the family would be walking back to their car, and the resident would be getting wheeled back, comforted by by the staff, and you then see really like th- this is their life on the other side of that plexiglass, their 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 life has occasional contact with their family, but mostly they're, they're inside these walls, uh, surrounded by, by staff who, who give them a lot of attention, but who aren't their family. And, and until the pandemic ends, there's a clear, clear definition between this side and that side.
0: Chico Harlan is the post-Rome bureau chief. He spoke to producer Ariel Plotnick. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We love hearing from listeners with feedback or questions or story ideas. If you're on Twitter or Facebook, you can follow me on Twitter at Martine Powers or join the Post Reports Facebook group. And if not, send us an email. We're at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity. All with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes.